Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on November 18th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we'll hear about trees and water with tree ring expert Kevin Anchikaitis and water maven Colin Chartres. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Kevin Anchikaitis. He's a researcher in the Tree Ring Lab at the Lamont Dougherty Earth Observatory, part of Columbia University's Earth Institute. A group of science writers visited the observatory just north of New York City on the west side of the Hudson River on October 29th, and we all got a brief primer on tree rings and what they tell us. The raw materials for what we do are, of course, trees and their rings. And um, what you're actually looking at when you see a tree ring is two different types of cells. So in the early part of the growth season, a tree puts on uh, rather large, thin-walled cells. And these cells are used for conducting water. So these uh, are the cells that allow water to come from the roots up into the canopy. Tree makes use of of this for photosynthesis. Um, And then photosynthates, the food for the plant, as well as hormones, come down, back down the trunk, um, and participate in uh, forming these cells. So the first cells a tree puts on during the year are these thin, walled, um, somewhat larger cells, and they have a very large intercellular space, and all the better to pull water up into the canopy. Is this xylem Yep, exactly, this is xylem. So phloem is on the outside, and that conducts food and, and hormones down from the canopy. And xylem is the conducting tissue, the, which is the rings are made up with. Mm-hmm. Brings the water up. As the growing season goes on, as you get towards the end of the growing season, in temperate regions, the days get shorter, temperature gets cooler, um, the tree starts to form a different type of cell. So uh, it puts on somewhat smaller but thick-walled cells, and so they have very little intercellular space. There's very little empty space in the, uh, in the cell. And so you can think of these two types of, of cells as, as two different types of straws. So early on in the season, the thin-walled cells are like a typical drinking straw you'd get um, you know, at a fast food restaurant or something like that. The later cells, the later xylem cells, are much more like a cocktail stirring straw, so very little intercellular space. And it's this alternation between the light-colored large cells, and you can even you actually may be able to see the contrast between the intercellular space and the cell wall. And this is, this is why this is connected to um, water supply in air, particularly semi-arid, arid site uh, trees, is that the more they want to put on, they can put on more xylem if there's more water available. If there's less water available, they uh, have less use for uh, creating these new tissues. And they're more likely to put on these smaller, uh, thick-walled, small intercellular space um, to avoid cavitation, to avoid ending up with a cell with no water in it. So this is what actually gives us the raw materials, the rings. It's this alternating light and dark, or if you will, thin-walled and thick-walled cells. Uh, This is the way it works in conifers. It can be a bit more complicated in hardwoods. So oaks, for instance, the first thing they do is put on a really gigantic circular vessel. Um, and then they start to put on smaller vessels, and then as the year goes on, they don't put on vessels, and they just have fiber. Um, so different types of cellular structures, but the same motivation. The tree wants, if you don't mind me anthropomorphizing, um, to get water up from the roots into the canopy uh, to start photosynthesis, to start growing for the year. And so it's this alternating types of cells that give us what, what looks like a ring from, from some distance. So this is what the tree is doing. What are we doing? Well, um, we collect two types of samples, and actually we have to get them out of the tree first, and that's done using an increment bore like this. Um, And what this is, it's three parts here. The first part is this bore. It's hollow, and it's got a very sharp, uh, several very sharp tips, like a drill bit. Now, because it's hollow, if you put it up against, and 
be very careful, it is sharp. Put it up against the tree and you start to turn it with the handle. Do this by hand in almost all cases. Um, you can actually drill into the tree. Because it's hollow though, that small little straw, and not even as large as a, as a pencil, a piece of wood is going into the bore here. Then when you get inside, uh, hopefully to the center, you take the spoon. Now the spoon is sort of a half circle and it's got little teeth at the end. But this goes in and then the sample comes out sitting on the spoon. Then you store it and bring it back to the lab. Um, they look, like I said, like not even the thickness diameter of a pencil. Um, when we got back to the lab, the sample you have there, uh, we mount the uh, samples in these uh, sort of balsa wood mounts, light wood mounts, and then we sand them. So we sand them with progressively finer grades of sandpaper. You start with a very coarse sandpaper, you move to a finer sandpaper, and so the smooth surface you see on there, there's no stain or anything like that. That's just the result of using progressively finer sandpaper. And the reason we do this is we have to be able to visualize the cells into the scope, and you'll see that you can actually see the individual cells, and that's pretty critical because you have to be able to identify the point at which the late wood cells end and the new early wood cells begin, and that's where you put the boundary of the rim. So once you got, uh, oh, and the other type of sample we take occasionally are cross-sections. So these are taken usually with a chainsaw or a cross-cut saw. Um, we don't cut down trees, so these are actually, um, all three of these are from trees that were dead and down. The two large cross-sections are from Huon Pine in Tasmania, and this is a pretty remarkable species. Brendan Buckley, my colleague, um, did his dissertation work on this, and what's really remarkable about them is they're really ancient. So the one you're holding right there is about 1,000, or was, about 1,700 years old when it died. Yeah, absolutely. What actually happens when a tree dies? It just somehow stops uh, doing this process yeah, every year? exactly. And, yeah. and there's no, nobody knows why? Well, uh, that's a good question, and there's a whole area of research on why trees get old and why they die, uh, what causes tree mortality. So, um, like any organism, they seem to have a, a shelf life, um, and it depends on the species and the site. Uh, the Huan pine live very long time, and then when they die, uh, they tend to, um, a lot of them tend to end up in the rivers and the lakes in Tasmania, near Frenchman's Cap, and that's where these were retrieved from. So they were deadened down and preserved in sediments. Um, and that's why the uh, chronology, the um, time series we have of wide and narrow rings from Huan Pine in Tasmania goes back to uh, 1,700 something BC. So it's an over 3,000 year long record of climate from Tasmania. So these are not fossilized, but they're sort of like in Yeah, we call them sub-fossil. Uh, so they're, they're in the kind of environment that eventually would form a fossil given long enough, but they're still, you know, they're still wood and they haven't been mineralized. Uh, it becomes very difficult to work with a, a tree once it's actually been petrified. Um, there's all sorts of processes that go on in mineralization that make it uh, kind of difficult. Um, but it becomes, you know, if it falls over and becomes mineralized, you tend to get compression and, and changes due to the mineralization that goes along with uh, petrification. Can you tell if a tree was diseased or if there was a blight or something? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's other things we can do besides climate. Um, and that's, so one of the things we can do is we can look for insect outbreaks. Uh, defoliators leave a pretty distinct uh, fingerprint on the ring width. So if you defoliate a tree, say with a pan Pandora moth, which you find in the Pacific Northwest, um, you find a very distinct pattern of, of rings. And what happens is the rings get um, narrower and narrower and narrower uh, after, over a few years as the defoliation progresses. Then you have a series of very narrow years. And then as the tree recovers, they get uh, bigger again. And so it's actually a very sort of distinct ramping down and ramping up um, that you can see. 
And what researchers that do dendroentomology that look for outbreaks like that do is they have a set of host trees that are, are attacked by the defoliators and then non-host trees that aren't. And so you can compare the trees that aren't hosted or, or don't play host to the defoliators, ones that do, and then you can really see that, look, this tree was growing normally, this non-host tree was growing normally, this host tree has this very distinct ramping down and ramping up, and then you can count um, the frequency of outbreaks, how long it takes for the tree to recover, those sort of ecological information. So the, one of the livest, longest living organisms on the planet is the bristlecone pine tree, and they're found in the White Mountains, White, White Mountains of California, uh, San Francisco Peaks, so around the Great Basin, um, in Nevada, California, Arizona, uh, Colorado as well. And they, the oldest living one that, we've, that has been published on in our field is, is uh, over 4,500 years old. There was one from Great Basin that's no longer living that was, is, uh, was 4,600 something years old. And there may be older ones out there that we, that people in the community haven't revealed yet. Uh, these are all living stuff? Yes. But, but they're not preserved the way, say, this is, because that's a dry climate. Well, it's a very dry climate, and actually that's why they tend to be preserved. So if you go up into the bristlecone pine forest in the White Mountains, uh, particularly, it's so dry up there that there's wood just laying on the ground, and some of it is thousands of years old. So, so I believe there's a yeah, there's a contiguous record back almost nine thousand, maybe almost eleven thousand years now, and then there's a gap, and then there's another floating, what we call floating record, where it's dated internally amongst themselves. We know roughly, well, we know the relative date of a bunch of samples, but we only have a vague idea from radiocarbon dating the precise date. So there's actually a gap in the continuous record there. Although every year people go up to the White Mountains, uh, scientists and volunteers and they collect uh, this, these samples that are, are literally laying on the ground. And you have no idea how old, you are and how old they are until you can date them. So the way that's done is a, a system of pattern matching. So if you measure these rings, and that's what we use uh, these moving stages for, sorry. Um, so you uh, put the samples on the stage. You sight down the scope with the crosshairs. You put the crosshairs on the boundary of the ring. You press this button, and then you move the stage very little bit. You can't even see it moving, but there's a linear encoder, and it's, um, it's recording the very small movements of the stage. You get the next ring boundary, you put the crosshairs on it, you press the button again, and you've got the width of the intervening ring. You do that tens, if not hundreds of thousands of times, and you've got all these data. A uh, computer records it all, and then we can operate on it. match one section, that will have uh, how, how, when you're, when you're overlapping mm -hmm. like that, how big is the the differences. I mean, obviously, every tree can't grow the same way. Right. So we're counting on, on something uh, that can synchronize growth in a bunch of trees over a large area, and that thing is usually climate. So all these trees are experiencing the same climate, same broad-scale environment. They may have individual disturbances. They may be growing on slightly different soils, but they're all experiencing the same climate. And it's that climate variability that synchronizes growth. Um, and that's what allows you to take a, a sample that you know how old it is compare it to one that you've just picked up off the ground and say, right, this sequence of rings go up and down together for 50, 100,000 years. I know what the outer data, outer data of this tree is, even though I picked it up off the ground. And so this is decades of work doing this sort of thing. But this is what Brendan and his colleagues did with these. So, but that's how these uh, records are pushed back in the time. Redwoods, also very old. Uh, Pacific Northwest uh, Douglas fir, very old. And now this sample that I actually passed around is from a species of uh, tree. It's in the cypress family. It's from the central highlands of Vietnam, tropical. And um, 
This, I, this sample, I don't know how old it is, but this species we found individuals in excess of a thousand years living in the tropics in Vietnam. Um, and they contain an excellent climate record of the early uh, season of the monsoon. And so our current research has been to use long-lived trees like this from the tropics uh, to try and do reconstructions of the Asian monsoon. Um, I did want to talk about one other ecological um, thing you can um, determine from tree rings, and this, that's fire history. So this sample, um, what you're looking at, these lobes here, are actually the result of fire scars. And if you actually get close enough, you can see that um, there's still charcoal, there's still mm. charring on the wood. So what happens in a conifer tree in particular is you get a fire that burns up against the trunk. Um, if it can penetrate through the bark, it'll destroy the cambium. And the cambium is the living zone of cells on the, around the outside of the tree that's actually producing the xylem on the inside, the phloem on the outside, the cork cambium. So it's basically doing all the work of growing the trunk of the tree. Well, if you kill the cambium, you can't grow xylem there. And so that year, you end up with a scar, a fire scar. Um, now, in environments where fire burns frequently, like the western, or should burn frequently, like the western U.S. ponderosa pine uh, forests, or the sort of mid and low elevation pine forests in the west, this happens over and over again. So basically, once the, the bark on the tree has been burnt off, has been damaged, you can get cambial cell kills repeatedly. And so what you can see here is that there are actually multiple fires here. And what the tree has tried to do is to grow back over the damaged cambium. So um, the year ends, the next year, next year of growth begins, and the tree starts to try and grow back over the scar. Um, but again, in an environment like this where fires burn about every 20 years, naturally, uh, or did before we started putting them out, um, it doesn't get to grow the cambium over completely. You do every once in a while find a tree that did succeed in completely growing over a scar. So you, um, people that study fire like this They'll take a cross-section with, um, with the chainsaw, and you can actually uh, uncover hidden scars, ones that have actually grown over. So this is another process. Uh, we don't do this so much in this lab, but obviously out west, this is a, this is a big um, area of research trying to figure out how frequently uh, fires burn. Of course, you need water to grow trees, and next to the air we breathe, water has always been the world's key natural resource. The Scientific American website currently features an in-depth report on water. One article is by Lynn Peoples. For that piece, she interviewed Colin Chartres, the Director General of the International Water Management Institute. They met November 5th in the lobby of the Millennium UN Plaza Hotel in New York City. It's a noisy environment, but I teased two short clips out of her long interview that I thought were worth hearing, despite the background din. Climate change, obviously, is, is central to this. Um, and I recently heard that um, the, the current negotiating text for Copenhagen is lacking water at the moment. It does, yeah. Well, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but do you think that needs to change and, and why? <laughs> well, in a, in a very trite way, one of my colleagues uh, mentioned previously that climate change mitigation is all about gases. You might have heard this, but climate change adaptation is all about water. Okay, what, what's it going to do to agriculture? Well, it's going to do a number of things. Temperature rises are going to impact specific uh, crops, so breeding for heat tolerance is going to be important. Less rainfall with, you know, because of 
well, a combination of less rainfall and higher temperatures, more evaporation. We'll need more drought tolerance. But on the water side, uh, there may be uh, more variability. Uh, there may be less rainfall in certain areas. In others, there may be higher rainfall but more intense storms, so maybe more runoff. So in those kind of cases, we've got to, we've got to go to those technologies like devising ways to capture that excess water and store it, put in place reservoirs, groundwater systems and so on where we can utilise that water and also take on board all these efficiency gains. If you look at mountainous regions like the Himalaya and the Central Asian region, the the, the estimates are about, in the longer term, about 30% decline in in runoff because of snowmelt, because the glaciers and the snowpack will retreat higher. So we've got to find ways in which we can uh, do things smarter, uh, more efficiently with water to, uh, to, to, to to plug that gap of the 30%. It's, it's paradoxical as well because at the same time many of these countries have still got population growth and they need more ag- more food production, so the, the real paradox is growing more with, with less water. So how people can not even contemplate water in a in the climate change debate is, be, is beyond me. It, it is the thing which is going to have the big, be impacted most severely. I've heard people talk about increased conflicts being a potential issue. When, when you look at it, there haven't been very many conflicts over water yet. Uh, doomsayers say that uh, you know there will be conflicts over water, but uh, my view is that would be crazy because there are the, the there's enough there's enough known about what the reform agenda has to be. There's enough known about the science and technology and uh, in terms of improving efficiency that really uh, we you know we don't have to go down that path. I mean, water's water's going to have to be shared, and there's going to be less of it and shared between more people, but it doesn't mean it's something that people need to fight over. Um, even in the Middle East, there's not been a lot of uh, actual conflict over over water, and in fact there have been some quite encouraging signs of using water as a, a conciliatory uh, process about looking at the issues and trying, trying to share it better. I think we have, to, internationally in the future, we have to look more at increasingly improving our transboundary water sharing agreements. We have to look increasingly at um, getting better data and information about how much water there is, who's using it, how it's going to change with uh, climate change and other pressures on it, including uh, looking at quality issues. We need to be very cognizant of the fact that there has to be uh, an environmental water fraction remaining because there are a lot of uh, environmental services provided by having fresh water rivers. The first one is, of course, fisheries, which uh, provide an income source of uh, work and an income to a large number of people, but uh, biodiversity maintenance... uh, and just in general, fresh water is actually made fresh by the environment, by, by, by good land use, by uh, natural conditions, by filtering before it gets into groundwater, etc., by natural processes. So we need to make sure that we look at that environmental side of water. So if we, t- if we take all those things and, and, and put in place good, good sound management and do business as we should be doing it now, not as we were doing it 50 years ago when water was plentiful, there's some scope for optimism, I guess. Again, you can check out the entire in-depth report on water called Confronting a World Freshwater Crisis at www.scientificamerican.com.
Now it's time to play Totally Bogus, and all items are related to content in the November issue of Scientific American Magazine. We usually interview Editor-in-Chief Maria Cristina about the contents of the new issue of Scientific American every month, but travel and other intrusions meant we didn't get a chance to talk to her about the November issue. So here are four science stories revolving around November issue content, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. About 10% of stars belong to clusters, that is, swarms of possibly tens of thousands of stars within just a few light years of space. Story two, in 2030, world maximum power consumption using today's fuels will be around 16.9 terawatts, but switching to wind, water, and solar decreases the power demand to only 11.5 terawatts. Story 3, Germany leads the world in average broadband connection speed. And Story 4, the entire world's population uses land equal in area to South Africa to grow food and raise livestock. Time's up. Story 4 is true. South Africa's area represents the total farmland that feeds the world's almost 7 billion people. But growing crops in city skyscrapers would save water and fossil fuels, provide fresher food, and eliminate agricultural runoff. That's according to the article, The Rise of Vertical Farms, in the November Scientific American. Story 1 is true. 10% of stars belong to tightly grouped clusters of lots of other stars. Our sun might have originated in such a cluster, but drifted away over time. Check out the article, The Long Lost Siblings of the Sun, in the November issue. And story two is true. World power demand drops to 11.5 terawatts if sourced by wind, water, and solar, because electrification is more efficient. For example, only about 20% of gasoline's energy is used to move a vehicle, with the rest just producing heat. More than 75% of electricity used in an electric vehicle goes toward motion. That info is in the November cover article, A Path to Sustainable Energy, which outlines a plan to use wind, water, and solar and eliminate fossil fuels entirely. And check out the web version of the article, which has lots of very cool multimedia bells and whistles, at scientificamerican.com. All of which means that story three about Germany leading the world in average broadband connection speed is totally bogus, because South Korea has the fastest broadband connection speeds, averaging 11.0 megabits per second. They also have enormous penetration with about 90% of households getting broadband. Germany's speed is 4.2 megabits per second, same as the U.S., and in both countries, about half of homes have broadband. That info is from the article The Everything TV by staff editor Michael Moyer about how the increasing use of the Internet as the source of TV programming is poised to upend the TV viewing experience. Also, don't miss Kate Wong's fascinating piece on new discoveries about the fossils of the tiny people of Flores, known as the Hobbits, an article on chronic pain, and a piece on the future of cars, as well as our usual assortment of news articles and columns, including my in-depth report on a book called The Geek Atlas for anyone interested in having a science sightseeing vacation. that's it for this episode of Science Talk. You can follow us on Twitter as Siam, S-C-I-A-M, 
and my personal tweets as Steve Mursky. And check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, including coverage of the AMA's decision to try to encourage more research on potential medicinal uses of marijuana. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.